News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this week, the Tokyo Olympics are, well, supposed to get underway. We're about a week away from that. But to say that these will be a different Olympics is an understatement. Already delayed by a year, there won't be any spectators. Athletes and everyone participating have to go into quarantine. And already they have positive COVID-19 cases and there are concerns about containment measures. But Canada's going. Our team is set to arrive. So for an update on all of that, we're joined now by Crystal Gumansing, our Global News European correspondent. Hi, Crystal. Good morning. So what do we know about Canada's team going to the Olympics right now? Well, it's it's in this process, and a little bit later today, uh, we will have some news in about a half an hour. I can't share those details with you as of yet, but um, keep in keep tuned in because there will be a, a big announcement coming up for Team Canada. But right now, the focus in Tokyo is on Toyota. This is a major game sponsor, and this morning they came out with a huge announcement. The company, the biggest automaker in Japan, is pulling all of their related Olympic TV commercials from the Japanese. Airwaves, And this just shows you how contentious the games are, how sensitive people are to the fact that these games delayed, but they are still going forward. This is, of course, a company who donated more than 3,000 vehicles to the games. They're a huge sponsor. And not only will they not be running Olympic-related ads locally, the president of the company and top officials have announced they won't be going to the opening ceremonies on Friday. So this is a huge change, and it's one that could lead to other major sponsors making some changes. And as you said, the games, the opening ceremonies are on Friday. Athletes are already there. More athletes are on the way. That is so bizarre. I was thinking about the opening ceremonies too. So there's not, doesn't sound like there's going to be very many spectators, which seems to me it will end up being kind of surreal. I think it's going to be such an interesting games because, you know, not only you look at the, the just the mental aspect of, uh, of of sport and and the role that the crowd plays and cheering on the athlete and the sort of the the extra boost that the, the athletes get from from seeing their flag and hearing the, the roar of the crowd that won't be there. They're going to have to find ways to hype themselves up. Um, you know, they're not going to be touring around. There isn't going to be that amazing energy in the athlete's village. You know, there isn't a there isn't a Canada house this year. All of these little bits, and they're not going to be touring around getting to know the country and meeting a ton of people. They're in their own little bubble. They can go in a certain time before their competition. They can go into the country whenever they want to, but they can't actually go to the athlete's village until a specific time. And then it's something like two days after their competition, they have to be gone. So there isn't really that even that celebration. There's no embracing. There are no spectators. There won't be local commercials running. Uh, so some major, major changes. And of course, there's still the fact that a lot of people in Japan don't want these games to go ahead. That was actually going to be my very next question to you is yeah. how having, you know, being here in Vancouver, knowing that experience, I can imagine how we would have felt if we had spent, you know, all that taxpayer money to put them on and then we weren't allowed to go. There must be quite a lot of bitter feelings about that. I think you make a really good point, right? Because you you sort of invest and you buy into that idea of investing this money for the payoff. You're going to see these athletes, you're going to have the experience, and then your community is going to have the ripple effect of a year later, people coming because they saw Vancouver on the television and thought, oh, that's beautiful, I want to go. These games are already the most expensive Summer Olympics on record. We don't know the full extent of the costs because those haven't come out yet. They likely, will they have this knock-on effect with tourism afterwards when people are 
aren't going to be there in the first place. And what you do see on TV might be kind of weird because there's, you know, there's no there's no few athletes around. There's no spectators around. And then we also have to remember there is a pandemic happening. Yes, Tokyo is in its fourth state of emergency. Cases are a concern there. Now, cases haven't been as high as, say, in the UK or in the US, but they're still very high and concerning for Japan. How strict are the protocols there for the athletes who are arriving? Like, what do they have to do? The, the the protocols are really strict, and it's complicated. You have to do a number of PCR tests before you go, and they have to be done so many hours before you're going. On the plane, you have to have, you know, you're sort of in the sort of bubble situation. Then when you arrive, you're doing another test at the airport before you leave. You need those results. Then you're going into your um, living quarters, your bubbles. You're isolating there. You're limited to where you can go in the country and in the city. There's It's not like you're touring around on days that, um, you know, you're not competing. Competing. You're not going mm-hmm. to watch other people compete. Um, there's a lot of restrictions as far as, you know, where you can go, where the media can go. As I mentioned, you know, no parties, no Canada House, no big interactions. After an athlete wins, they're not going to go celebrate with, you know, all their new Olympic family. They're probably going to be going to bed, packing their gear and getting on a flight. Oh, what a bizarre circumstance this is going to be. Crystal, yeah, thanks so much for that. Really? Yeah, no problem. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking about the Tokyo Olympics this morning. Opening ceremonies get underway July 23rd, so about four days from now. But weird opening ceremonies, right? Marching around in that big stadium, but no spectators in the stands. And you just wonder, with everything so different, are people really going to be watching? We thought we'll talk about that this morning with our Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. What do you think? Are you going to be watching? Well, they... I always say in the lead up to the Olympics that, oh, yeah, I'm not going to watch the Olympics. But then as soon as they're on, I find myself watching, right? Because they're on all day long. It's something to watch. It's always interesting. So I probably will end up watching. But also, I think this time around, it's just fascinating from the fact that this is going to be an Olympics unlike any other. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not a deeply a nationalistic person. And then I watch the Olympic events. That's right. That's what happens to you. Yes. Yes. I find myself screaming when we, Canada, wins a medal. And I have like great memories um, since being a kid. Some of my favorite TV memories actually um, are of watching Canadians win medals and actually even watch Canadians not win medals, but try really hard because our athletes are in some ways, they're more significant than like Hollywood celebrities to us because unlike actors, they're superhuman, right? They push their bodies and their minds to the limit. So much sacrifice is on the line. I feel so badly for these athletes who are, you know, in this eerie non-Olympic village exactly in Japan, not getting the celebration, the support and encouragement that they normally get from their fans and their close family members. And then we see so many athletes dropping out because they can't, they can't bring their family. And for a lot of uh, women, that means not being able to bring their children. And in some cases, uh, some breastfeeding moms have had to drop out because they can't bring their child. Isn't it just, you think you train your whole life, right? How much you sacrifice and you're, you're doing that, you're training because of that Olympic experience to get to the Olympics. And that's the whole thing, not just competing, but the whole camaraderie, meeting you know other athletes from other countries. That's what you do this for. And then 
it's not going to be like that. And I think even though we're sending a very large contingent, by the way, 371 Canadian athletes, that is the largest team that we have sent to the Olympics since 1984. That's huge. Yeah. I wonder how many journalists we're sending, though, because when you see these pictures and videos of airports um, and people heading to Tokyo, you see a sea of journalists. Yeah. And yes, athletes, but you see a lot of people going to cover uh, the events, but not anyone in between the athletes and the journalists. And it's like, it's really, it's hard to say this, but it's kind of sad. And the mood is like one of worry. It's not as festive as we'd hoped, uh, obviously. Um, And you also feel like if a pandemic cannot stop the Olympics, then nothing can. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Um, Just yesterday, the teenage American tennis star Coco Gauff, she said that she had tested positive for the virus and she wouldn't be competing at all. Yeah. And it's you're just gutted for these young athletes who you know have put everything into this. And so true. They uh, don't get to participate. We should mention here as well that they did make an announcement. One of the announcements that, that Crystal Gumensing had mentioned there when we talked to her is that our flag bearers have been announced for Canada's opening ceremonies there. And it's Miranda A.M., who's a three-time Olympic women's basketball player, and the men's rugby sevens co-captain, Nathan Hiriyama. They are going to be the flag bearers. I Also, though, Raji, I was thinking, if you are a taxpayer in Japan... Uh, you paid a lot of money for these Olympics, right? You've invested an awful lot into this. $20 billion Canadian is what the bill is at right now. And it turns out you also, just like the rest of us, have to sit at home and watch. Like, how would you feel about that? I know. And so when angry. I heard that $20 billion, I had to do a double take. I thought, uh, surely there's an error there. Nope. Because what I would be so upset about as a citizen is, are we getting a return on that? 20 billion investment. How much are they expecting to get back? You know, in Vancouver, we were all very pleased to see so many updates to infrastructure, so many new things being put up, fortified um, for us to enjoy for many years to come. How much of that is going to happen in Japan? How much are they getting a return on this investment? Because it's huge. Yeah, it really is huge. So it does beg the question, are you going to be watching? Are you looking forward to the Olympics? Let us know. And if you are, like, tell us your story too. Send me at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. Uh, Raju, what is your most vivid Olympics memory, either from our 2010 games here or maybe watching the Olympics when you were younger? Uh, when I was actually living in Montreal, I got to interview Alexandre Petit about his win in the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And he was uh, one of our divers. And when he nailed his dive, I felt this kind of pride for him as though he <laughs> he's a family member. And I remember even getting teary when he took the podium. Uh, again, like all those kind of interviews that they do in advance of of performing um, in their event, all that stuff leading up to it just makes you get a little bit closer to them, to their dream and really root for them. So yeah, when he nailed his dive, I, I remember just feeling really proud of him and kind of proud of our country. Oh, true. I think for a lot of people, the memory is of like right here in Canada, you know, 2010, 
so many memories for people here because I know a lot of people out there volunteered. Maybe oh, yeah. you were, yeah, remember, and you remember the wait that we had for the first gold medal? Remember how people were just like waiting, waiting, waiting? When are we going to get that first gold yes. medal? And I just remember the like walking around downtown with my family because it was such a great atmosphere. And the first time that that happened and the whole crowd cheered. I think we have a lot of warm memories of Olympics here, which is why I have a lot of sympathy for people in Tokyo. So I would, we'd like to hear your stories this morning about that. Is your best Olympics memory one from our Olympics in 2010? Maybe it comes from an event that you remember watching on TV. Let us know. You can call our buzz line 604-331-2899 or drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. Have you always watched the Olympics when you were a kid too, Raji? Oh, yeah. Always. And I was one of those, uh, one of the people who was always rooting for Canada by way of also not rooting for the American athletes. I always wanted to just <laughs> see the Canadians win. So it's true. Not, you know, that terrible, some cliches people say uh, sometimes that you define yourself as a Canadian by not being American. Unfortunately, I fall guilty of that when it comes to the Olympics. Oh, Alex Bauman, right? Big swimmer for oh, Canada yes. in the 80s. Watching him in 84, that was a big deal when I was a little kid. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. What are your Olympic memories and are you going to be watching this time around? Let us know. Simi at cknw.com or call or buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. So all these cases of a fourth wave of COVID-19 that we are hearing about in other parts of the world are being closely watched by health officials here at home because they involve that highly transmissible Delta variant. And according to the latest data from the BC Centre for Disease Control, the Delta variant makes up about one third of the cases here in this province. Now, that's a big jump from a couple of weeks ago. So should we be concerned? Well, Sarah Otto is a UBC mathematical biologist and member of the BC COVID-19 modeling group. And she says it needs to be looked at in context. So she joins us now to talk more about how we do that. Thanks very much for being here. Good morning. So what is it that you feel it's important for us to remember when we talk about the Delta variant here in BC? Yeah, so any one week, it's really hard to judge the numbers. And that's for two reasons. One is, as you said, there can be just a little cluster of cases, a whole household, a big household that gets gets Delta. And that can cause these numbers to jump around a lot when there are very few cases in the province um, as there are now. There, are, you know, It's been hovering around 50 for all of July. The second reason is that the, the data that we're getting, we're not getting updated regular data. We're getting... Uh, kind of dribs and drabs about the variant. Uh, And this is because they haven't completed all of their genomic work by the time the reports go out. And so we've seen kind of massive jumps that are just due to the samples that they happen to have processed. And so it's a little hard to know if that's a part of this big jump that we saw from last week to this week. Right. So the genomic testing takes longer than the regular test, right? It does take longer. And they, they, they used to do these kind of faster tests but they've turned to only genomic sequencing to type the variants. And that's great because you get more information, except that the, it causes a delay in information. It's very hard for them to process all of the sequences within one week and get it out into the variant report. Right. And so why are people so concerned, Sarah, about this particular variant? Because from what I understand, it's just that it is highly transmissible. Well, yes, exactly. Um, and it's, you know, it's really like thinking about exponential growth. We had the exponential growth of the original um, strain that um, spread at a certain rate and would double, you know, every couple of weeks. And then we had alpha and alpha transmitted even 
um, uh, twice as much as that, you know, one and a half to twice as much as that original strain. So it's a faster exponential growth curve. It's like going to a bank with a higher interest rate. And now we've got this third variant where the interest rate is the exponential growth rate is even higher. And what that means is that things can spiral out of control sooner and faster because you, you think it's not a big deal, not a big deal. And then, um, but a, just a few weeks of doubling and then you've got a lot of cases. And even though hospitalization rates are much lower now with all of many people vaccinated, we're still seeing in other countries the hospitalization demand rising. So at what point would you be concerned? Like, what would you look for to say, okay, now we have to really pay attention? Yeah, so it's a combination of that proportion of Delta cases and the total numbers. And the good news is that we're going to have um, a few weeks of, of an indicator. We're going to see rising cases and rising proportion as um, Delta spreads in this province. So I think we're going to have that warning sign. Fortunately, so far, uh, it's not just the combination, not just vaccinations that are protecting us, but I think people are still being pretty careful. They're still wearing their masks inside, even when doubly vaccinated. They're still, you know, um, being very careful about having closed indoor public contacts. And I think that's really helping um, limit the spread of Delta right now. Right. It, it'll be hard, though, if, I mean, I, nobody wants to see those numbers increase, but I think people have very quickly gotten used to having things go back to, you oh, know, a more normal yeah. situation, right? That's right. And so what can we do individually to keep this, you know, it's great not having these restrictions. So, you know, but we know as a community what we need to do. And I think these kind of milder things, which are keep masking, do most of your pub, your socializing outdoors if you can, and talk to your friends and family who might be more hesitant about getting vaccinated. It's really a community effort to explain, uh, you know, this is one of the safest vaccines we've ever had. These mRNA vaccines, they're not even a whole virus. They're this teeny tiny little part of a virus. And, and we've had, um, you know, just fantastic success rolling this out. So any, anything we can do to just help people get comfortable with the idea of getting vaccinated and helping them get an appointment um, is what we can do as a community. Because right now, um, those, the people that are unvaccinated, and there are many, many reasons that they may be hesitant. Um, that's who I'm worried right. about. So we seem to be just kind of plateauing at this 79, 80% number, don't we? Well, I think we opened up, um, we had been declining and then we opened up and that stopped the decline. So yes, we've plateaued, but I think it's in, it's almost in, you know, it's because of our opening up measures. Um, and, and the question is, have we opened up too much and is that number starting to grow? And of course, exponential growth at first seems really slow, but, you know, double, 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 and all of a sudden you're dealing with large numbers. Right. So what else do we know about this particular, these newer variants like the Delta variant? We know that they, you know, they're more transmissible, but is there anything else that makes them different? Um, it, it also lands people in hospital at a higher rate, and Delta has been found to kind of thwart um, immunity as lift just a little bit more. So by the time you get two shots, you're fine. But there's data showing that after only one shot, you're not as protected. Um, you, you, you probably won't go to hospital, but you're not as protected from getting uh, COVID. Right. Okay. So we still need more people to get that second shot. Like people should not be lax yeah. about this. They get that email, get down there. 
Exactly. Anything we can do to raise the vaccination level. And, you know, having a large fraction of the population with only one dose at the moment still means that there may be people that are getting it and passing it along. So, yes, as many people as we can get vaccinated, that'll help protect the entire community. Right. So when the numbers come out today, then what will you be looking for? Yeah. So I will be looking to see if that, you know, if it's gone from that plateau to a start of growth. Um, and, you know, even just a weekend, that's not enough to, to know, but we will watch a trend over the next week or two and determine whether or not we're starting to see growth. All right. We will do that. Thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. That is Sarah Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia. Now, she's also a member of the BC COVID-19 modeling group. And so they closely watch these numbers. And I know there's lots of concern about that Delta variant because it's been these variants have been fueling the exponential growth in the number of cases, particularly in the United States. And we now know that about a third of the cases here in BC are a result of the Delta variant. So as she said, though, you got to put it into perspective. Small number of cases, obviously the number is going to seem larger if, you know, she's at a family perhaps or the ones who test positive with that same variant. So we'll be watching carefully when those numbers come out today. But that is one thing we keep an eye on for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today marks a significant day if you have a loved one, somebody you'd like to visit in long-term care facilities because residents in those facilities are now able to have visitors without restrictions provided people are fully vaccinated. So that's the thing. What do you need to know about these changes today? Joining us now is Mike Klassen, Vice President of Public Affairs for the BC Care Providers Association. Mike, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. So a good day, would you say, overall? Exciting? I think it's a really important day, and I think it's going to be a day filled with emotion for a lot of families who are going to have that uh, that wonderful experience of being closer together without a mask and having that opportunity to, to hold a hand or, or give a hug. I think that's what we've been missing for the last 16 months, and I know a lot of families are looking forward to it. Okay, so what do we need to know, though? Because this is not just back to normal, right? Um, yes, no, there are, there are some uh, guidelines that, uh, that the public and the people who are going to be visiting should be aware of, and, and as well for care home operators to, be, to understand as well. So uh, the most important thing is having some uh, proof of vaccination. Um, so I, I guess all of us who've had both shots will have a little, uh, little card that you can pull out there, but that kind of paperwork is available. And I, I imagine if you don't have it for some reason, you could print something off uh, from, from the website. Uh, but you want to be able to at least give some assurance that you have um, uh, the, have been fully vaccinated. And then when it, when it comes to actually entering the care home, you do have to check in with a greeter. Uh, for about the last year or so, uh, the BC government has been funding the greeters that come. So their people actually come in, check you in, um, and they will um, you know, just make sure that you uh, get to where you need to go. Um, but they also are going to be... Um, uh, making sure that you're masked when you're sort of transitioning through the care home. So once you arrive at your destination, whether it is in a room or it's in a in a seated area where you can uh, meet, um, that's the area that you'll be able to take off your mask and, and sort of have that one-on-one experience. And that's when uh, all the family members can come in as well. Okay, that's interesting. So that greeter position sounds like it's become quite essential. 
Well, it's, it's supposed to be funded until the end of the year, which gives you an indication that they think that um, things will be sort of fully uh, open by the end of that, uh, by that time. But it, is, um, it, it has become a really, I think, an important role, and it was, uh, it was a good idea when it was brought forward. We were very supportive when it happened. Uh, so what's happening is, you know, somebody's working a full-time shift, which would leave them, you know, probably about an eight-hour eight day that they would be working. So I'm hearing from operators that they're planning to start them later in the day, such as at 11 o'clock. And then they'll be able to stay on until 7 o'clock, which means that people can come after work over the dinner hour or something like that to do the visit. Okay, so nobody needs appointments anymore. People can just show up. Exactly, they can they can just show up and and uh, again, provided uh, they're able to show that they're uh, fully vaccinated and uh, have a, a mask to wear at least uh, to be able to go through the care home, uh, then they're good to go. Now, Mike, how big of a deal is this for residents in long term care homes? Because I know there's been a lot of concern about the impact that the isolation has had on them. This has been. Um, an experience that I don't think we hope we'll never have to repeat it again in our lifetimes. It, 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 it was a, such an incredible sacrifice, and, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of discussion and, and uh, looking, looking back and reviews as to whether this was the right policy or not. Um, you know, there are some that have said that we could have been rapid testing sooner, uh, back as, as far back as November. Uh, maybe um, loosening things up then, but um, it has been, I think, a very emotionally taxing for the residents. Uh, we've, you know, we've heard stories about cognitive decline and 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 just uh, people losing weight, and uh, just because they haven't had that human connection. But uh, it's also been really challenging for the family members as well. But one of the things that um, when uh, Terry Lake, our CEO, issued a statement on Thursday, uh, was just to let people know that that. Our staff uh, in these care homes have done work that I can only imagine how challenging it has been, and so um, we're we're re- we really want to um, make sure that these folks can have uh, continue to be successful at what they do, uh, taking care of our loved ones, and and so with the the last 16 months being just as difficult for them as well. Um, we know that there's a lot of exhaustion there. So I, I imagine that when we do come in, I've just sort of bring an ounce of compassion, a little bit of patience. Um, don't expect to get a uh, rush in all at once. Uh, but I would imagine that if we can just make sure that um, uh, we know that this is a, a change is happening um, and work with, uh, with the care home staff, then it'll be, I think, a real success and a, and a really wonderful experience for everybody. Oh, I hope so. I think there'll be a lot of tears, too, in the first couple of days. Uh, Mike, what about the weeks ahead, though? Is this something that, you know, care providers are going to carefully be watching just to make sure that we don't, you know, have any impacts of this? Well, you know that we've, uh, with along came with the policy was a uh, decision by the uh, public health officer to uh, make sure that um, those staff that haven't been vaccinated are being rapid tested. So assuming that they're uh, working on a full-time shift, they would be rapid tested uh, three times a week, uh, assuming that they have not been fully vaccinated yet and they will still have to wear PPE. The staff that um, are fully vaccinated will be able to take off those goggles and those masks and and again, um, it's having that face-to-face contact with the residents that means so much for everybody. Um, but I think we're going to just have to be very careful. I think the whole, the, what's happening in British Columbia right now is a sight to behold. I was out uh, down at Sunset Beach yesterday, you know, just thousands and thousands of people down there. Uh, uh, very few masks to be seen. Uh, people just outside enjoying um, the, the, the outdoors. 
and I hope that this this is what what the future uh, lies ahead for uh, for the for BC and for our care homes where we can kind of get back to normal. But I think we all have to just be careful, respect some of the indoor masking rules that still apply in in, in some institutions, some um, businesses, mm-hmm. and um, let's just uh, let's just work together and um, and keep. Uh, Keep moving forward because I think we're we're on the right track right now, and and uh, hopefully it's all uh, uh, we can all put this behind us uh, in a few months. Oh, I sure hope so, Mike. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. See you later. You too. That's Mike Klassen, Vice President of Public Affairs for BC Care Providers, talking about the fact that today is the day where they are lifting the rules for long-term care facilities if you want to go visit a family member or loved one who is in one of those facilities. Now, there are a couple of things to remember, right? you got to make sure you have your vaccination. You also have to keep your mask on in the public areas of the care home, as Mike mentioned there. And when you're in the area, like the room or the visiting area that you're going to be spending with your loved one or whoever your friend, then you can take your mask off. But in the public areas, they're asking that you still keep your masks on, right? So it's not like 100% back to normal, but definitely some huge changes, some huge moves there that I know everybody's going to be closely watching over the next couple of weeks to make sure everything stays safe. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've talked a lot in recent months about the demand for change in the Canadian military when it comes to dealing with sexual assaults and harassment. It's that same kind of pressure that has been applied in all sorts of industries and communities right across the country in this day and age. But are things actually changing? Is there evidence of that, say, even within our legal system? Well, for more on that, we're joined now by Morgan Chandler, who's co-managing partner at Vancouver-based Hammerco Lawyers. Morgan, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me, Timmy. Do you see things changing? The answer is yes, uh, but it is slow. So things are changing. I think there has been a shift in recent years with how sexual violence is viewed and how sexual assault is viewed. There is now uh, growing awareness of the fact that it is so difficult for survivors to come forward. And so the starting position is, we believe survivors when they come forward. That in and of itself is quite a change though, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And I think it's only in recent years with especially the Me Too and the Time's Up movement that we have seen that shift. And, you know, don't mistake me, it's not across the board. It is still a very difficult thing for survivors to do to come forward and tell their story. But I think there is that growing change and that growing awareness. Yeah, how much of that is actually just in dealing with survivors and and victims having the expectation that they will be heard? Absolutely. I think um, there are different forums in which people come forward, and the choice of forum uh, does dictate whether their voice is heard or not and to what extent. For example, in the criminal sphere, you know, it's a very difficult decision for someone to come forward to make a complaint to the police, and then it gets taken over by the Crown. Uh, Sometimes survivors or victims don't feel that their voice is heard during that process. Right. You said choice of forum. What does that mean? Sure. So uh, there's a few options for survivors, and I think there's also an awareness of of that, um, which is increasing. 
you know, typically it was thought, okay, I've been a victim of sexual violence. My only recourse is to go to the police and see if they will um, proceed with an investigation, see if criminal charges can be brought against the person who did this to me. Um, But now we're seeing more and more people say, okay, um, maybe that wasn't successful. Maybe the police didn't, you know, investigate or the Crown didn't bring charges. What other options do I have? And so we're seeing people go through the civil system and bring their own action where they have agency. They are in control of that process. What is the difference in process then if somebody chooses that route as opposed to the criminal route? So the criminal route, you really are handing things over to the police and the Crown, and you become more of a witness in the process. Whereas on the civil side, as I say, you you are bringing the action. So you are a plaintiff in that action. You are seeking compensation for the harm that someone did to you. Uh, and you can control that process in terms of, you know, how, how it unfolds whether you have a face-to-face with this person through some sort of mediation or settlement conference setting, you, you have much more control in the actual process. So is that something that people are choosing more and more? Because that would seem something relatively new then, right, for the Canadian civil system. You know, it's been around for a while, um, but I think there is a growing awareness, first of all, of it as an option. But also there's been a shift in, the, in how these cases are viewed by the judiciary by lawyers who take these cases. Um, You know, it it used to be that there needed to be a significant amount of um, corroborative evidence. If you had someone bringing forward a complaint and it was the evidence was their their word essentially against the perpetrators, there was a reluctance to take those cases. There was a reluctance to push those to court um, without additional evidence. But I think now there's an understanding that that person's testimony about what happened, that is evidence, and that needs to be tested in court. But that that is now, in many cases, seen as sufficient. So when you see what's happening in the Canadian military, right, all the headlines, all the stories coming out of that, do you think that helps with the overall issue? I certainly think it helps to increase awareness. But, you know, it's it's very disappointing. I mean, let's let's face it, Canada's men and women in uniform deserve better. I think there are steps in the right direction. So, for example, last week we saw General Vance has been charged with uh, obstruction. That is a step in the right direction, and that indicates that times are changing. But I just read this morning that one of the uh, former top recruiting officers who had been charged with sexual assault, those charges have been downgraded to assault. So it's really a, a, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Right. But it does keep the stories kind of in the headlines. Right. And and do you think that is that also prompts the discussion too out there? Uh, Absolutely. I think it does. I, I think every time there are stories about these types of incidents and also about the ways in which organizations respond that keeps the discussion going and it educates people about these issues. All right. Well, Morgan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. 
Thank you for having me. That's Morgan Chandler, co-managing partner of Vancouver-based Hammerco Lawyers, talking about the ways in which things are changing when it comes to even reporting sexual assault in this country. As you heard her say, it's not just the criminal side of our legal system that is being used for this now. More and more, it's also the civil side of the system. Uh, and that is a choice that uh, some sexual assault victims are choosing to make, which is so fascinating. So more on that for sure.